for me, my essence is basically to live life on my own terms. And because I refuse to settle for being one thing, I've kind of always looked for the answers in my environment. And if I'm in Chicago or if I'm in Spain, it's like I'm trying to always look for my reflection in the places that I am and then the experiences that I get and always be learning and always be changing. It's kind of made me a traveler. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, a podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and the stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. Because you know what? We do. We do. And we are out here and we do this. So thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode. It really means a lot to me. During the creation of this podcast, I really realized that it was not only a labor of love, but it really was something that I wish had existed for my 17-year-old self and my 25-year-old self. The goal of the podcast is really to become a resource bank of just amazing and fantastic stories about Black women told by Black women living abroad and their just varied experiences. Being a Black woman in any part of the diaspora is not a monolithic experience. It is varied. And deciding to move outside of your home country is not a monolithic experience. It really is determined by your values, the things that make you, you. And I'm hoping in this podcast that the various incredible stories that are shared really inspire all of you listeners, but also hopefully that you see yourself and you resonate in these stories of these just dope women. Something that I talk about to people who ask me about living abroad is I tell them that moving outside of your home country makes you so awake to your life because you don't have the luxury of kind of sleepwalking through everyday familiarities. Everything is kind of different and strange, even if you move to a place where you speak the language fluently. You know, culture and bureaucracy, small everyday nuances and nuisances really take a toll. And it really makes you very alert to the things that you not only like, but also the things that you value and also the things that you need to live a life well-lived. I'm also hoping that these stories just help you to maybe think a little bit more deeply about the life that you are currently cultivating and help you to be a little bit more intentional as well. And so let's get straight to the first episode. The first episode I'm so excited to share with you is the story of actually a very dear friend of mine, Nayana. And we met each other while living in northern Spain in La Rioja. And we were both language assistants at the time. Her story is fantastic, but don't take it from me. I'll let Nayana tell you about it. I think I 
really got the desire to want to change my environment, mainly from my childhood and spending summers with my dad in Texas and exploring like California with him. So like I would spend my summers with my dad, but in Chicago, I had one life. And then in the summer, it was like this, this freedom that I would have to just kind of be on the road with, with my dad and I would get to spend time with him. So I don't know if it was just maybe missing his contact during the year and knowing that when I get to travel, a lot of great things happen. First, I get to see my dad and I get to see and experience things that most people where I came from don't really get to do. So I had like this duality in my life and I would feel just like all of the preconceptions you have about what makes sense to you gets thrown out the the window and we would just go and explore all kind of things and without any plan. And I think I started to feel like identify very positively with that. And maybe in some ways it was therapy for me, but I felt like I lost this part of myself and I could kind of be anything when I was traveling. The very first time I got on a plane, I was three years old and I was flying to go see my dad. And I, I think at the time I had never flown on a plane and I was so young, I didn't really remember what my dad's face looked like. And so it was just this really interesting adventure. My mom just drops me off at the airport and I'm like a little girl with all these barrettes. And I flew to Arizona and I got off the plane and I was just like, what? This place is so different than anything I've ever seen before. And uh, yeah, you know, when you spend time, you have separate parents like that. One parent kind of becomes the fun parent. So no matter what was going to happen after that first plane ride, I was going to love it regardless. Niana and I bonded over the fact that we both started traveling solo at really young ages as unaccompanied minors on airplanes. I don't know if you can travel that young anymore by yourself, but hey, it was the late 80s and early 90s. It was crazy, y'all. There's a small sense of abandonment at the at the other side of this story. It's like, there was nobody to fly with that three-year-old. It's like... The uh, funny thing about my story, which I was like, well, am I going to go into the complete real story? But we are being real. So the thing was, you know, my dad is not on my birth certificate. So I was not supposed to be going to see him. I was supposed to be going to see my uncle because the airline wouldn't allow my mom to let me go on a plane to see someone who is not a direct relation of me. And if it's my father, then he needed to prove he was my father. So if he's not on the birth certificate, how could he prove it? So I'm three and my my dad's mom and my mom are trying to remind me of my lie that I need to tell these people when I get on this plane. You tell these white people. Now that's your uncle. And when you see him, make sure you say, hey, uncle. And I'm like, okay. And then like, you cannot say he's your dad. You have to tell him that you're five. I was also supposed to be five. And I was like, man, this is a lot. This is like, so I'm nervous to get on the plane and I'm saying goodbye to everybody. And I sat next to this Chinese girl who was also flying single. And the whole time she was showing me all her money and I'm trying to convince her to give me, give me a 20, right? We're just bonding. I don't remember her name or anything. She ended up giving me a five. She was like, I'm not giving you no 20. I'm like, come on, give me a 20. She ends up giving me a five. I feel so excited. We land and I see my dad and I'm thinking, how am I going to know for sure that's my dad? I see him and I said, daddy! 
and I ran for him, and he just let out his arms and grabbed me, and he goes, you're supposed to call me your uncle. <laughs> I was like, I forgot. So we chatted about how her love of travel began in childhood, but really continued as she grew up. And as she traveled across the country for internships in upstate New York, and even at my alma mater, the University of Georgia, but also about her opportunity to study abroad. I went to a small liberal arts uh, university in southern Indiana, University of Evansville. I don't think anyone has ever heard of it. I think we had this really strange study abroad advisor who was like really quirky and she would give presentations. So I knew early on that I wanted to study abroad somewhere. I just didn't know where, even though I did have an appointment with a lady and she predicted that I should go to Denmark, to Copenhagen. It'll be the best thing. That's exactly where you belong, darling. And I was like... Yeah, I ain't got them Copenhagen dollars, though. I gotta stay somewhere close. So I ended up studying abroad in Costa Rica. I did one semester there. So I did, I think, ecology and field ecology there while I was in Costa Rica. And I put that in quotations because... You know, I mean, they weren't going to be able to get very much out of us. You just spend a lot of time traveling and studying. Mostly I did a lot of uh, outdoor, like, little research projects with uh, with the school. Because it, it was a university in the uh, suburb of the capital of Costa Rica. So it was in the mountains. So it was a little bit smaller, which I really enjoyed. But, I mean, we were surrounded by beautiful forests and everything. And everything's like a bus ride away, so... We would go into the jungle and like count insects and things like that. It was amazing. I was lucky that my credits transferred, so I really didn't have any problem. And I used my last eligible year financial aid on uh, going to Costa Rica. So we were a group, I think, of 50 uh, Americans that was uh, exchange program at that university. And there weren't any other uh, universities doing anything there, so we were the only group. But all of our classes were basically together. And we had a lot of American teachers who were, who were either living in Costa Rica or who had came down to do it, but they weren't. We were all from different universities. And I think out of the 50, there were... There was me and another black dude and then like five mixed people. Us brown, brown mixed people kind of formed a little crew. Almost all of us had uh, host families. So that you were at least all on that same schedule as uh, Costa, Costa Rican people and eating the same food. Your host mom would provide you with all your meals and your lunches. She would pack you a little lunch in the morning. I wasn't so lucky with my host family, my first host family. She started off nice, and we had a maid, because I think most people in Costa Rica, like, if you're lower middle class, you have a maid. And she had this rule where she wanted me to wear a robe when I would go from my... I had my own bathroom in my own room, and I would literally cross one step from my bathroom to my bedroom. She was like, I want you to buy a robe. And I was like, well, I didn't bring a robe, and... I'm not going to buy a robe. Like, I'm wearing a towel as one step. But she was very concerned about her husband seeing me or something. I I was like, okay, you know, because her English wasn't good. I was just like, I know what you want me to do, but I'm just going to do this little step real quick. She just didn't like like that. And she had a lot of rules. And she would make me tuna sandwiches, just take the can and dump the tuna on the bread. I didn't spread it out. So I was like... <laughs> So we had these little 
personality quirks that we didn't like and she wanted me to come home at night and I'm like I'm not coming home because <laughs> I would start the dog would bark when I would get home real late but you know we're traveling abroad like we out in the streets girl not coming home for dinner I'm not eating dinner tonight I'll see you later then I went to a more relaxed browner uh host family and girl it was great it was awesome there are lots of black Costa Rican like black black most of them live on the Caribbean side and I would go to that town, that Caribbean side, like every other weekend. <laughs> Costa Rica was, I mean, that is just like beach life. You got your flip-flops on, you know, you're eating pineapples. Instead of buying a bag of chips, you're buying some slices of mango. It, it was just, ah, uh, what, I think the best time in my life is like when you're studying abroad and you're somewhere that you just love and you have no responsibilities that is traveling that's that's that good good i will say that was probably the end of like a a easy time in life you know now i'm 36 so that was a at the end of costa rica was a tough time because i ended up leaving due to my mom getting sick and then my mom passed away 13 days after i came back from costa rica that that i think took my life on a different trajectory i focused on finishing school then I went right into working and I worked for about five years and and then I just quit my job because I wanted to travel and I was trying to figure out like how maybe how to get back to the person I was before going through the grief of losing my mom. And I wanted, I knew I wasn't going to really heal the way I needed to heal staying, you know, in Chicago. And it, it, that's when I was like, no, I can't, I can't keep doing this job. Like everything is okay. Like I got to go figure out myself a little bit and like figure out who I used to be. And yeah, I quit my job in order to travel. And then I came to Spain like two years later. She goes from company car to bicycling around town and doing numerous odd jobs, she finally lands at a restaurant where she learns about a program where you can live and work in Spain. One of her fellow servers puts her on to this program. They both apply, but only Niana goes. And her family, used to her traveling, don't really believe her when she says that she'll be back at the end of the contract. They knew it was coming because, I mean, I always travel. So they just was like, okay, you're going to live in Spain to go for eight months. And I kept telling everybody because the contract is for eight months technically. But you had the option to renew a second year. So I was like, at the most, I'll be gone like 16 months. And people were kind of skeptical, like, nah, you're going to leave forever. And I was like, no, nah, I'm coming back. No, nah, I'm coming back. Yeah. I, I laugh about it now. So many times people would just would predict that I was so much in denial. All I know is I needed to leave. I got to Madrid and I immediately, immediately fell in love with Spain. But I had been there before, but this was different. I saw the country as this, you know, like when you see somebody that you like really physically attracted to, like they have a perfect body, like you're in a gym and they're like just got through with a set and you look over and they got like abs and everything is sexy. That's how I feel about Spain. Damn, you got a country over here. Like, mm, this country is damn. Y'all got all that over here. I'm just like mountains check. 
uh, force check, beach check. It goes on and on with Spain. She moves to Spain about one month before the contract begins and falls absolutely in love with the country, but has to tend with the excruciating task of trying to find an apartment in Madrid in September when all the university students have returned and are also looking for housing. My ex in the U.S. had a friend who lived in, in, in um, like the suburb of Madrid. So she was like, yo, you can come stay with me until you find an apartment. But she had like two kids and I was sleeping on one of her kids' bed and he was getting mad every day. He'd be like, yo, when is she leaving? And then it's like, they thought I didn't know no Spanish, but like the little kid didn't care. He was like, yo, when, I want my bed. And I was like, oh my God, I can't. I can't do it anymore. So then I just went to a hostel and uh, got my phone, got my uh, WhatsApp. You need WhatsApp in Spain if you're going to live there, if you're going to talk to anybody. You can't do it without WhatsApp. I ain't going to lie, y'all. I had two ginormous suitcases, so the pressure was on. There are no elevators in Madrid. If it's the fourth flow, that's really the fifth flow, and you're going to walk all the way up with luggage. I took the very first apartment I saw. <laughs> very first so yeah and then I I moved out of there like a month later because the guy was insane so Nayana went to Spain with a program that a lot of other North Americans go to Spain initially with the North American language assistant program and the assistants are called auxiliaries the Spanish word for assistant. And they basically go there to help with pronunciation and culture. Experiences and responsibilities really vary from auxiliar to auxiliar and region to region. You just need a college degree, passport, no criminal history, and the ability to fill out an application. You get a student visa, health insurance, and a monthly stipend that ranges from 1,000 euros to 700 euros, depending on the region you're placed. And I should also mention that auxiliars typically work only 12 to maybe 16, 18 hours a week. So you have plenty of time to take on more classes, perhaps take on odd jobs, take a Spanish course, and of course, travel. My teaching experience was pretty positive. I was lucky that when, so when you go to a school, some schools will have one auxiliar. That's what we call the people who are a part of this um, exchange program. You're called auxiliares. So um, at my school, there was a total of four auxiliares. And one of them was a black guy from D.C., and he had been there the previous year and his Spanish was great. And we just really clicked immediately. So I was lucky that he was there because when you get placed in the program, you get a contract with the name of the school, but you don't know anything about the school. So you contact the previous auxiliares to get the intel, like tell me what the school's like, what uh, what schedule are you working? So they kind of meet with you before the contract starts and kind of like help you like answer any questions. Plus, they're probably going to be your first friends, your first people that you meet in the city because you've arrived. The other thing is that you're kind of a language ambassador. So you want to instruct them about 
our lives. They're very curious about where we come from, what we know, what we do. And especially if you're black, like they have been absorbing popular American popular culture. And especially a lot of that is black culture. So I think the last school year I taught in Lagronio, the kids was in love with Migos. And like they would see me, I'd be like, yeah, that way. I'd be like, oh, wait, wait, I'm supposed to be teaching. Hold up. Y'all about to turn me up and I'm about to teach. Like, <laughs> And us, the kids who don't know anything are like, what is happening? Like, yeah, that way. That would like incorporate into my lesson. And some people be like, well, yeah, for some of y'all out there that know, what's up? <laughs> so, you know, there. it's just to kind of bring your culture I talk about black american life i talk about like on uh columbus day because they celebrate i'm like what we not gonna do is celebrate columbus today and here's a presentation why (laughs) anti-thanksgiving my role always would be to even my students who can't speak really well i want them to want to speak to me like the trick is to get them to want to talk because that's the first part of language learning is to inspire someone to i I've got a sentence to say of oh, Justin Bieber is worse than Taylor Swift. Pero, pero, un momento. I, I, you know, like, <laughs> I've got an opinion. You know? I like Justin Bieber. And you're like, oh, and you also like English now. No, 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 no. <laughs> gotcha, though, girl. Told you you could speak, girl. Something that most expats living in Spain really bond over, at least in the first couple years of living in Spain, are the various ways of how to adapt to Spanish culture and the Spanish quirks. Like, Spanish people really like walking three to five people abreast, like across the sidewalk, and not leaving any room for any other people to pass. And... They don't really have the same concept of a personal space as is customary in the United States. And um, they're definitely a nosy people minding everybody else's business and uh, openly staring and gawking at anything and everyone. And of course, the language. You know, they say that Learning a language is always best when you're immersed, but there's a lot of things that come up while you're being thrown into the deep end. The Mediterranean mindset from compared to the Chicago mindset is like off and on. We don't really, we don't, we're not like that. All the touchy feely, um, the, you know, being late, like late, late, like 10 minutes late is not late. That's late. You late. <laughs> this meeting started 10 minutes ago, girl. I'm charging you for this part of the class now. <laughs> We're not getting extra 10 minutes at the end because I got five more classes. Um, the the staring, I think, bothered me slightly at the beginning because people was always staring at me and I would just stare back at them and then they would look away and I'd be like, okay, like that's annoying. Stop doing that. And I couldn't take being immersed in Spanish at first like I would avoid it avoid going into any situations where there were no English speakers (laughs) because it would make my head hurt it was hard it was really I think the first year I didn't try to speak any Spanish I was like "Mm." no but having a partner who was Spanish really helped that's I think that helped because I was forced to deal with it but I hated it. 
I hated it so much. It wasn't until they, I think my third year that I could spend a whole weekend in Spanish and not find it annoying or get anxiety about it. <laughs> so it takes time. As I mentioned before, the language assistants receive health insurance as a part of being in this program. And the health insurance really is dependent on which region you're placed in. And unfortunately, Nayana had to utilize that health insurance her first year being in Madrid. The health insurance varies per comunidad. So uh, yeah. depending on where you're placed, that's, that's going to be that state that will purchase a um, private insurance uh, policy for you. It, it depends on where you are. In Madrid, I had, uh, I think we had Mafre. We had a pretty decent one. It was one that had like a skyscraper downtown. I don't remember the name. But my surgery was very, very easy. All I had to do was go to a doctor or I just went to an emergency room with my issue and they were like, okay, you need the surgery. Okay, we're gonna do it on this day. You know, whatever, like they don't They don't say, oh, how is, uh, where's your money? Nothing, it's on my insurance card. Everything, I swipe the card. If I have the card, they perform everything and then the bill comes later. But I didn't receive a bill because it was covered under my insurance. So it was it was great. And the aftercare was amazing. I had to go back every day for nine days for them to take care of the wound. Completely covered. And I had time off from work to take care of it. And I've had, like I said, my colleagues come with me from work to uh, the teachers that I work with to doctor's appointments because they were worried. They're like, no, we want to make sure we understand because <laughs> you talking about what better a surgery where why uh-uh we're going <laughs> like okay it, it you feel better when you have someone there but people were very understanding that was my experience in madrid of course experiences vary i don't know how everyone's medical experiences are but i also don't have any preliminary things or i don't have any you know, conditions that I brought with me. So I don't take medication for anything. I asked Nayana about her thoughts on the Black community in Madrid and her experience as a Black American woman in Madrid as well. I met all kinds of Black people, Black Americans that were living there illegally and that was still working on trying to get their... uh, their tarjeta comunitaria. I'm like, you girl, you just came on vacation. You just stayed. Uh, other people. I mean, there's there's so many of us that have been there for like five, six, seven, eight years, and they just come and they just stay. You run into them on the street easily. You see each other like all the time. So I think if you like a little bit worried about coming to Spain and not having that type of sense of community in Madrid, you're going to have everything because you have so many African uh, communities there. There's all the places to get your hair, like any kind of uh, expressions, hair, whatever color, like it's all already there right in the center in Madrid. It's not even the outskirts. It's in the center. So it's just a little bit more hip. And I f- it just has a better feel to it, I think. And, it, and people just enjoy it more than, say, Barcelona. Plus, it's cheaper than Barcelona. The metro is just perfect. And then you have Lava Pies, which is where I used to live. And I just love that part of town. It's just more, it's more on the pulse of things. I think my first year, 
there was a riot because the police tried to evict someone out of an apartment because they weren't paying their rent, but they were they were dying. They were in hospice. So like they had cancer. And of course, at the end of their life, they were still in this apartment and the police tried to come and evict them. Well, the whole barrio was like, not today you won't. And he just literally beat the police up. I watched them get in their van. Everybody's throwing rocks. The whole neighborhood is like, nah, son. Yeah, you're not taking nobody out of here. They covering. They got in their van. Skirt, skirt it out. They had to back up reverse all the way out of the barrio. And they had to come back with, like, real manpower, though. But the whole neighborhood was lit after that. Like, people were just in the street just screaming. And I was like, see... That's what I want. You know, a little rough around the edges. Some of the stuff that I experience is kind of annoying. Is it the worst in the world? No. But is that enough to make it okay? (laughs) No, it's still like no one should have to put up with any of this racial bull stuff. I think there's two sides to being a black American than just being a black woman. The thing I quickly learned in Spain is that the moment someone knows I'm American they cast me with a different light and a different opinion and I'm still black but at least you're an American that's kind of like I've always felt that that little like relief from them in general when they find out that you're you're a black American and it's more about curiosity than just the they see a black woman and it's a negative stereotype so that I think is always going to be there no matter who you are and what you are I didn't have a lot of negative experiences in Madrid about being a black woman but I know that that was I that was like something that uh was just particular to me because I do have friends that also had some negative uh things in Madrid but the for me the biggest thing about ma- the Spain and being a black woman is there the Spanish male assuming that you're a prostitute. There is nothing in my mind about being black in in Spain that even compares to the anger that I feel when that happens and the situations that people have put that they put me in when I'm just walking down the street. That to me is one of the hardest things to deal with. Yeah, it's a tricky slope over there. uh, You can, a couple of negative experiences, and I think you can start to create that wall when it comes to interacting with the Spanish males sometimes. You're like, ugh. Not all of them, but of course the old men for sure, all of them. I just would love to just make them see what they're doing, you know, as, as being something that's wrong to do to women, period. Whether... I'm a sex worker or not, I'm at the grocery store. So how about you wait? (laughs) I think everyone listening probably knows that Spain is a pretty homogenous country. Most people in Spain are white. However, there are second and third generation people from other ethnicities in Spain as well. I've spent some time thinking about this, like reconciling my viewpoint as American versus uh, like the Spanish mindset. And I've I've had this conversation with Spanish people because they treat all of the people who do not look Spanish as the country that they originate from. They don't see them as a part of Spain as the, the greater envelope. And I think as 
Americans, we have a that is not a hard jump to make. Like, I don't care if my Mexican American uh, classmate is the first one born here, the second one born here. If they speak English with me in an accent that doesn't have an accent, I assume they're just American. I don't know where from their parents are coming from, but it's really easy to include them when I think of America. I'm including them and my thoughts and feelings, but of course I'm not white, so that's what a white American thinks is probably different. But here, you could be five generations deep. They'll be like, Chino. <laughs> like, nair. Nair, nair, nair. Yeah. I am you. You are me. We the same. What you talking about? Like, how do you not include me in your greater idea of what this country is? And that is something I think, you know, me and my husband talk about it a lot. Like, if we were to have kids, where we would want them to grow up. And even though I got a lot of negative things to say about the U.S., it's like I would want them at least to understand what it's like to be black in America. I still like coming from where I came from, even with all the negative things. But to be black and like have a little black, half black, half Asian kid in Spain, it's like, uh, do I want my kids to go through that? Because a lot of my black students, I've had moments with them. They've never had a black teacher before. It was my second year in Leon, and I was in a school in Leon that year, and there was this little black girl in one of my classes, and she was spicy. Like, homegirl, she was a leader, so she was a part of the cool clique in the class, and they was, they was third or fourth year, fourth grade, third or fourth grade. And so she was funny, and so she cracked jokes, but she also liked to get in people's faces and tell them what's what. She also, like, everybody would want to be on her good side because when she wasn't in the mood, the whole class felt it. Like, we was all under her her spell. And she would also be subject to them ridiculing her at the end of the day. Like, they could always be like, negra, you know, or whatever. And that would just put her back in her place. But she would come back with more aggression. She would never be, like, docile or quiet. Always clean, always had her hair done, just high energy. Sit down, you know, <laughs> like, sit your hair down. And she would get into conflicts and immediately, because the Spanish white child would be like, and she would be angry, the teacher would just assume that it's her causing the problem because she's mad throwing her book, you know? That's how she expressed herself. And so she didn't express it the way that that garners sympathy. So they would very often put her to blame and a lot of times she was to blame but <laughs> sometimes she wasn't and when she wasn't she would feel very frustrated and so I like one day she was just being like so extra I was like girl come outside and she was just started crying and she's just like I'm tired of this I'm tired of them being you know making comments because I'm black because I'm black I'm tired I'm tired and I was like oh my god like I felt for her because I was just thinking like I grew up and when we would have a white teacher, we knew it was time to play. Like, we not giving this teacher no satisfaction. Sit down. We would just be crazy. And when our black teacher would come back, boy, was we in shape. Like, you know, the feeling of being taught by someone who looks like you. She was like, I've never had a black teacher. You're my first black teacher. And I was like, oh, I just felt so sad. Think, like, how hard it must be to grow up in a little small town in Spain and your mom is working all the time. And she was like, she that her mom worked all the time and that she didn't get to see her very much and that she was sad about that and she gets angry. And I'm like, yeah, but when you're angry, you cannot hit people and go crazy. But I just saw it as her 
expressing this extremely frustrating situation and having all of these white people tell you that your emotions are wrong and I didn't think she was reacting wrongly I think she was reacting the way black people react not like Spanish people and you can't judge her in the same way and we had a good year but she was oh gosh she would get on my last nerves but she would always hug me and as soon as I came in she just felt like I was her teacher so she would be pushing everybody out the way like mm-mm Niana has finally come for us to have our class I'm like girl you know I gotta talk to all these kids Niana's sitting here I'm sitting here today and who gonna say something everybody be like nothing that's it I'm like but I can't approve this behavior. <laughs> but I approve. So I, yeah, I think it's hard to be black in Spain and in a rural area, maybe even in the city. I felt a lot of guilt there because I knew that all I had to say was that I was American. I would immediately be treated different, and I would have access to things that this person who's born here, who deserves it, will never have access to. Throughout our conversation, Nyana had been making fun of me. Um, for my thin-skinned ways. It was February when we recorded this episode, and I was shivering in Barcelona. It was 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and she was making fun of me because she's from Chicago, and she lives in the Netherlands. But I'm from Atlanta, and I used to live in Miami, and I was cold. And so we got to the topic of how she ended up in the Netherlands. How did I leave sunny Spain for wet Netherlands? Love. That's what that's what got me here. Um, yeah, my husband is Dutch, so that's why I now live in the Netherlands. And um, as an auxiliary, you have a ton of time to travel. And I was actually traveling in the Netherlands, and um, I met my husband, and it wasn't like a plan you know you you don't plan to fall in love with someone who lives like 800 miles away but I did and uh, we did the long distance thing from the Netherlands to Spain and then I convinced him to uh, move to Spain and that was great and uh, we lived together in Spain for a while but then when you're abroad and you get married to, to someone it's like okay, for you to really enact your European rights, you kind of need to be on someone's home turf. So either we're in his country in Europe or we're in my country in the U.S. And so for me to kind of get get all of my rights to work outside of being an auxiliar, for him to be able to really earn uh, a lot of money in his career field, we kind of needed to be back in the Netherlands where his family all lives and where we have more uh, rights to the resources that we can get. We really don't have any rights in Spain as as much because he didn't have like a permanent situation in Spain. So we had to have to, to choose. And so now we're in Utrecht, which is where he had a place to stay already. And we've been here almost, uh, I think, a year and a half. Oh my God. Now I'm uh, not in sunny Spain anymore. And... Uh, <laughs> It's sad, but uh, (laughs) we're making it work here in the Netherlands. That's a whole nother type of culture that I had already gotten used to, the Mediterranean culture. Now I have to deal with uh, Western Europe again, like somewhat American, but not. It's a weird mix of being kind of related to our culture, but not related all the way. At the end of the five years, I had got more Spanish 
and uh, he had uh, like really I had assimilated into it I knew the way the culture worked and here it was I didn't know the way the culture worked and I didn't understand even a little bit of the language and I didn't feel welcome I think that's the difference between the north and the south of Europe like this the northern countries up here and the ones down south Spanish people are warm um, if you even show a little bit of effort, they'll quickly like incorporate you into whatever they're talking about. And here's uh, Dutch people are more uh, shy and not as social. And I had already became like a Spanish person. La, 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 la. And then I got here and I'm like, no one is talking. Why is it so quiet in the grocery store? No old lady is bugging me with, hey, you, find me the thing I'm looking for. You know, like in Spain, the old lady's like, now you're doing my shopping. Where, where is this? And you're like, yes, yes, here, here, no one would dare speak to you, like, or strike up conversation with you. So it was really tough. And I think the thing that helped was being able to work quickly. And for me, like when I'm in new in a place, I just watch people. I be just watching like, okay, how do they do this? Like, how do they talk to each other? And um, like, what are the rules? When are you supposed to do this? And I, I started watching them and found out that mm, I'm not so curious about these people. I'm not interested in their culture or their history as much as I was in Spain. So I think um, that was uh, more tough for me. I think the difference between assimilating to, from the U.S. to Spain and then from Spain to here is that I had a, a level of the language, not, just a baseline understanding of Spanish, you know, and encountering it that helped having the language but the culture was shockingly different but everywhere English is spoken here so it's very easy to get on a deeper level with someone here than in Spain if you have a language barrier I think I've quickly gotten over the first hump but I still find myself banging my head against the cultural norms here and not really wanting to assimilate the way I thought it was curious to be able to adapt to the Spanish life. I'm less curious about being able to adapt to Dutch life, if that makes sense. They have all these old colonies of people who have come back and they live in the Netherlands and they have these communities of Surinamese people, of Moroccans, um, what else? Uh, Turkish. There are a lot of Turkish here. And then in Suriname, it's so mixed with the Latin American, Africa, India, Indonesian. And then my husband, he's half Indonesian. So they're also a big, giant part of the population here. So the, it, it has a smaller version of kind of what's kind of going on in the U.S. However, there are some things that Dutch people aren't so good at. And then they pride themselves on being tolerant and they are tolerant but they don't accept and um, I think that blinds them to a lot of things that go on in this country and for the most part it's pretty easy Christmas time is tough because they have the tradition of Zwart the Piet which is when they wear blackface basically and they are really kind of resistant to the argument that this is racist and they're quite violent against the the protesters and anytime you complain about or even point out any criticism against them their number one answer like 
well, your country's racist and go back to your country if you don't like it. Like, they straight up are like that. So, it can make it tough. But it's not all of them in the cities. The four major cities it creates like a geographical zone and they call it the Randstad. That part of the Netherlands has the most kind of progressive people where like Amsterdam, you're not allowed to wear blackface during the Sinterklaas uh, parade. They've just outlawed it. Like the government will not make their parade have blackface, but that doesn't mean regular people are not going to just go around in blackface. So the tide is changing, but their resistance to it and like just talking to people, it it, it like really sours you because you're like, oh, I thought you was cool. But here you are telling me how it's a tradition and it's for the kids. And why am I making it about me? I'm like, it ain't about me. Kids don't care if you're wearing black, pink, purple. I know what one thing you don't get an afro and pink lips and gold jewelry because you slide down a chimney. Now, that is just fact. Will you agree on that? They're like, <laughs> the subject of resilience really always comes up in conversations, I think, among expats, because to not only move abroad, but to live and to really sustain and create and cultivate a life abroad really requires a form of resilience, right? A continuing on. It is frustrations and comparisons to your home country and being tired at how hard this is and why it is so hard when it's just something stupid. I just want to order something off the internet or I want my package to come. Why is it stuck in customs for 5 million days? You know, those little things that requires a little resilience to you learn the language, learn the customs, learn the bureaucracy. You're going to be uncomfortable a lot. That's just how it is. I think you you definitely will learn that you can be way more flexible than you give yourself credit. And not even that you learn, that you kind of have to be like ready to be uncomfortable for a significant part of time that that is always going to be the process of growth of any kind of growth that that moving to the next culture is going to be so uncomfortable because it's going to take a time for you to get used to it but there will be something on the other side but are you willing to kind of go through that period when the honeymoon is over and it's just like oh this is just like life where I was before except I really got to have my shit together. <laughs> like, you can't... It isn't like all is great here on out. It, it is... There is always going to be a challenge. No matter what, it's never boring. It, it's... I will... I haven't been bored in years. Like, I don't know whether the experience is extremely good or just a mundane type of activity. It's always under that... uh fresh new eye of it being in another from another perspective so yeah if you like excitement good excitement and bad excitement it's all exciting it's always like oh getting a library card I still haven't done it yet but I'm like oh god that's gonna be an experience like maybe not if I was in the U.S. but here because it's a whole nother procedure you're gonna learn a whole nother way of the way people organize books and organize the way that they lend those books out every culture is different so i'm kind of excited about this new 
library card that I'm about to get. If I was to tell someone, oh yeah, I'm getting my library card, they'd be like, wow, okay, that's not a thing. But it becomes somewhat more exciting when you know you're going to be getting a new library card in a new country and you're going to learn about this new way of doing something. So many things happen to me. So many, I make so many mistakes, like big old giant ones. Even in language, I may say the exact opposite of something. I mean, I am a nonstop like source of entertainment for myself and for the people who are watching me flail through this this country. It's like, why do you even think? That's not how it works here. I'm like, oh, well, just embarrassed myself. No, I'm never bored. Like, this is just another day. And finally, I asked her what kind of advice would she give to people who are looking to move abroad and particularly for people who are already abroad wanting to sustain themselves and or switch career fields. And she really let y'all have it. I think to be like really just first organized, have all your paperwork, either someone in the U.S. holding on to some original copies, you know, just keep your financial paperwork prepared because once you're over here, you may find, like you said, that you need to access some paperwork, you need to get something formalized, some international certification. Have a designated person who will be your go-to person who can handle reading your mail and uh, who may need to, yo, I need to send her birth certificate here to get a stamp in D.C. I would recommend having someone as your designated on-point person. Usually it's probably your parents or something. But just make sure that someone's got who can look at your paperwork and kind of help you with that because you never know what might happen. You might lose your passport. Anything can happen. So always have like someone in the U.S. I feel like that can handle that. Try to talk to as many people that have already done or gone to where you're going. Really go out and make connections with them via Facebook or meet up. They're usually, especially if you're black, there is probably a group in that country already like if they're there already do use those resources and come with like you know some real questions do some research on where you're going use the search function please do research on the place that you're going to research neighborhoods top five neighborhoods in madrid i looked at all the neighborhoods and i had three that i had already felt like were my vibe and when i found those i looked for other bloggers or vloggers who had traveled there and what their experiences are. And I look at the Google map and see what kind of restaurants are there. Or, and I do the Google streets. Are there brown people there? Like I kind of had an idea about the country that I was going to before I went. So like, what's the vibe in the Gothic neighborhood in Barcelona? That's a completely different question. And where should I live in Barcelona? It's like, what? What's your question? You know, like... Just remember there are people that are going to help you, but please do your own research. Know what you want out of a place. Like, do you like living in a city or do you want something more chill? Like, kind of figure those things out before you just move to a place and expect it to kind of all come together. And just be ready to be uncomfortable. Don't expect to go there. Like, you literally should expect to be like, okay, the first month's going to be lit. Month two and three, I'm going to be, like, homesick. Unless you are really rich and you have family there, you're probably going to experience that no matter if you were changing states in the U.S. or moving to another country. There's going to be a peak and then you go down. 
and once you know it's coming and you can recognize it, you can weather that unusual downtime that you're going to naturally feel when the honeymoon has kind of came to come to an end and be flexible, flexible, hustle, be on your grind. Think of ways to make money and know your worth. People come here and they're like, well, I don't have any experience doing girl. Don't leave with that. Be like, yes, I do that. And I do this. And in the meantime, go on Google and figure out how to do those things and then do it. I think you always need some foot in the door. And I think that comes back to what you said about resilience. You you have to be resilient in the way that you're willing to do it in. You know, if if you are okay with teaching, then go the if you're coming to Spain, go the teaching route and, and become an auxiliar. There are many programs that will give you at least that first year so you can kind of like take the pressure off of trying to find the work and you can kind of enjoy your life because you have a very good work life balance do that if you are like no teaching's not for me i want to be in say uh marketing then yeah get online and try to connect with people who are already living in spain and doing that and you can do that through linkedin through meetup but here's the reality how's your language skills like what else do you got underneath just i have a marketing degree that's not enough are you willing to learn spanish are you currently in a program then lead with that while you're applying and i'm in the process of learning spanish or i am i've got an a2 and i'm working on my b2 certificate it's not going to be just filling out your resume and applying you're going to have to find another in to the job it's not going to be your traditional pathway you've got to kind of create your own path and a lot of it like you said is living a more active life like all of your experience has to do with you actively participating in it be it language skills be it you know dating a person from that country and using that into your advantage either through the opportunities you gain through them going out and meeting people and being awkward and uncomfortable just because you need to make some connections where you you know you've got to figure out where you're missing and how you can get in and you got to attack it from all angles it's not going to be a to b nothing about living abroad is a to b but if you are resilient and you hustle and you're always like trying to make it to whatever goal you have that's the kind of energy you got to bring to make it long term because I applied online. That ain't. That's not how you get a job. That's not how I got my job here. I didn't just apply online. I called a recruiter in Dutch, and I had only been here a couple months, and I asked in Dutch if they spoke English. And the guy was so happy. He was like, of course I speak English. And then I said, well, my qu- I had a fake question about a job posting, and they placed the number, so I made up a question to ask. And the guy was immediately like, oh, please send me your resume. I'm ready. Oh, please. I want to, I want you to apply to this job. And I ended up getting the job. And now I work for them. Uh, I have a one-year contract with them. So I didn't just put in my application and uh, hit send and hope that I get the job in the Netherlands where they speak English. I took a chance. I need to do something more drastic. I need to call directly. And Dutch people don't really do that. So I use that to my advantage. For me in the U.S., that's something that I do all the time. When I have a problem with a company, I call directly, and you get a startled response. So I thought I'd shake them up, and it worked. And now I have a job. So 
I'm like, okay, you know, you take the girl out of Chicago, but you can't take the Chicago out the girl. Now I'm gonna get me some. <laughs> I'm gonna get me a job. <laughs> Nyana is great, and for more information about her, check out the show notes and the website of Flourish and the Foreign. If you like the show, go ahead and subscribe and rate the podcast five stars. Leave a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, this labor of love, but labor nonetheless, please share the podcast with all of your friends on all of your social media channels. And if you feel so compelled, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter of the podcast. That's where I'll be creating the Flourish in the Foreign community, dropping behind the scenes videos, and have live Q&As with some of the podcast guests and so much more. Patreon is a monthly subscription service. You can decide whatever level of support is most comfortable for you. Special shout out to Michelle Curry of Frequency Media based in Atlanta. She is a dear friend and also an incredible businesswoman and podcast producer. She has a podcast production company called Frequency Media. And she really gave me the encouragement to start this podcast and access to her amazing course on starting podcasts. So thank you. Love you. Also, special shout out to my brother, Zachary Higgs, who created the music for this podcast. So if you found yourself bopping along, that's my brother. And if you're looking for beats or music production, maybe music for your podcast, your YouTube channel, whatever, definitely check him out. His Instagram is at Z-O-H underscore 15 and all of his information, the website and stuff like that will be in the show notes of this podcast. All right, that's it for this week. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign, because it is a little bit rude, low-key, to kind of speak, if you're in a meeting, to speak languages that not everybody understands. And they do that if they want to kind of keep me out of the conversation. And it's not really with malice or anything. It's more like, I just need, like, I need to get something past you real quick. But, so it is fun to, like, follow up on their question in English. Be like, oh, no, I think that date is good. And they're like, oh, you speak Cantonese? I'm like, no, not really. Or I'll just like, yeah, a little bit, you know, just a little bit here and there.